Our sermon text today comes from Colossians chapter 1. I will be reading verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then we're going to skip down to chapter 2. And I will read verses 9 through 15. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were made circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God. Who raised him from the dead? And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So, Uh, Before our thoughts turn to the events of Easter Sunday and the resurrection, uh, I want to remind you a few points about our sermon last week from Palm Sunday when we uh, discussed the events of the triumphal entry. And it's important that we talk about this because this is going to lead up to uh, some of the points I want to make in this sermon. Uh, So if you'll remember from last week, we noted that on that Sunday, There was a clash of symbols between the Romans, but also the Jewish people and Jesus. Jesus rode into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And we talked about how that symbolized that the presence or the glory of God was at last returning to Jerusalem. Yet this presence of God that had been promised for hundreds of years rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And in this way, Jesus' triumphal interest entry was a purposeful rejection of power as typically exercised by violence and oppression. The donkey as a beast of burden was a symbol of the presence of God as a servant rather than as a conqueror. And this really should come as no surprise to us. God the creator gives life. He orders the world. He orders it to be filled. He orders it with abundance and he has designed creation to flourish. But of course, we know that uh, that story does not always go that way. Uh, humanity, beginning with Cain, uh, uh, goes on to uh, to uh, seeks uh, to to uh, go against this story. Uh, people seek to accumulate. They seek to exploit. They seek to enslave, and they accomplish this through violence. Jesus, however, is God's image and true picture of how power was meant to be exercised by humanity, said uh, he came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life. 
Jesus washed the feet of his followers and then went on to share a meal with them, even with one of his followers who would betray him. So, as we read our two passages from Colossians today, I want to do something similar to last week. I want to look at the symbols here and what these symbols mean to different groups and what it meant to Jesus. And so this time we will look at the central symbol of our faith, the cross. However, before we uh, get there, let us look at the first part of our reading today from Colossians chapter 1, which is sometimes known as the Christ hymn. This passage is grand, it's cosmic, it's soaring, it's beautiful in its language and imagery. It's, it's, it's really fun to read. I mean, you're, you're, you're immediately captured, uh, your imagination is captured by it. However, this hymn, as beautiful it is, it, as it is, is also more than that. This hymn is actually a direct challenge to the entire foundation of the world of the early Christians of Jesus, the Roman Empire. Uh, the world that Paul, who wrote this poem, and uh, uh, the people he was writing it to were subjected to. Uh, because this hymn is so beautiful, and because, uh, you know, also our familiarity with it, and the difference in the world that we live in, it is sometimes easy to miss how incredibly subversive these words would have been. However, if we understand the audacity of the claims being made here, uh, it will uh, help us to understand what the cross meant and symbolized into the world and why the cross changes everything. So if we look at the hymn, it begins with this claim that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Now, if you're like me, most of the time when you read this, you're like pretty basic. Check. Jesus equals invisible God. Uh, it seems like a statement that might be important for a confirmation class or maybe a proof text to ensure that we have our correct doctrine. Yet, this line is a direct shot to the emperor of Rome, uh, who was seen as the manifestation and image of the divine will on earth. In the Roman world, the image of uh, the emperor was everywhere. Uh, you couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting some picture or representation or symbol of the emperor. It's why we know pretty much what all these guys uh, look like, even though it's been 2,000 years later. Uh, it's because their image was a projection, was seen as this projection from the divine world onto the earth. And that image was designed to ensure peace and order in the cosmos. Displaying this image uh, was meant to reassure that peace and order uh, was present at every corner of the empire and every aspect of your life. This hymn uh, then goes on to call Christ the firstborn of all creation. Now, again, this is something uh, that means a little bit more than what we mean. This, you know, again, we usually read this and we're thinking about correct doctrine. Uh, but in the ancient world, uh, when uh, we think of uh, the firstborn, that actually meant something more to them. Uh, antiquity was something that was valued in the ancient world. When something was old, it was considered wise. It was considered important. It was considered worthy of deference. Uh, as I just had a birthday, uh, I'm kind of on to that. Um, but uh, in the Roman world, antiquity equaled authority. Something that was old was authoritative. You listened to it. You paid attention to it. Uh, it gave it legitimacy. 
In these verses, Christ is not only called the firstborn of creation, but also the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. And in everything, he is preeminent. And all of these statements are uh, there. They're an attempt to establish this priority of Christ. And therefore, by his antiquity, his ultimate authority over and above all other claims. As a result, everything, and this point is very explicit that it means everything, things on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and even all the kingdoms of the earth, up to and including the Roman Empire, were originated by Christ, and therefore subject to Christ's authority and power. Whereas it was believed that the divine will was represented and exercised by the emperor, the hymn of Colossians claims that not only is that will represented and exercised in Christ, but Christ is also the divine will because even the divine invisible world was created by him and subject to his authority. So the hymn here is one-upping even the worldview of the Roman Empire. Verse 19 sums it up. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And all of this would have been amazingly treasonous and dangerous for anyone to claim. Like I said, I want to move beyond just thinking about this as just a statement of doctrine, just something that we can make sure all our theological ducks are in a row. This was much more than that. It was a direct attack on the foundation on which the power and glory of the entire society that they lived in rested upon. So, All of that is pretty interesting, I think, and I think it's pretty awesome, but what's really interesting here is that Colossians is going to take us uh, beyond this, okay? This is going to be more than about competing claims about who is really the ultimate power in the cosmos, and it's going to take us to another place and what this means and why Christ's kingdom is very different from Rome, and I think that's really going to be the important lesson here. Um, If we look now at verse 20 in chapter 1, we read that power and authority, that this power and authority that Christ is claiming, the whole point of it is to do what? To reconcile to himself all things and to make peace. Now, uh, the, the thing about this claim, though, is that that is the same thing that the emperor was claiming to do. That was the same thing that Rome was about. Everybody wants peace and reconciliation, right? Uh, Remember last week I talked about how the the great achievement of Rome and why they claimed the authority that they did, uh, that, that they believed they were in a golden age, was because they had established and legitimated their rule by what they called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Uh, This so-called peace, though, was achieved uh, through their armies, their great armies. It was achieved by violence, by war, by death, and by crosses. It was maintained through slavery and through exploitation of the poor. Uh, one One of their Romans' own historians, Tacitus, wrote, They make a desert and call it peace. However, If you look at how peace and reconciliation is made by Christ, according to verse 20, what does it say? It is by the blood of the cross. And that is key here, the cross, because this statement means that uh, Christ is more than just a nicer version of Caesar. 
that Christ is more than just the right answer to a question of doctrine. The amazing claim is this last statement, by the blood of the cross. And it is this part of the Christian claim, I think, that changes everything. This is the part that's going to go on to change the world. This is the part that will divide everything from before Christ until after Christ. Because you see, the Romans had established peace. They had done so. It was kind of a nice place to be considering what came before. There were roads, there was, you know, uh, sanitation, clean water, aqueducts. That was all great. Uh, But it all came through the shedding of blood and the building of crosses. Christ, however, establishes his peace in a different way, by shedding his own blood and by suffering on the cross. And so anyone hearing this letter in the Roman world would have instantly been recognized and been astonished and shocked by this inversion uh, that Colossians talks about, that this peace comes from the blood of the cross. These words are not a mere uh, proposition of doctrine, of the process of how somebody, you know, gets killed so they can rise again. They are stunning words of sedition and treason that highlight exactly the difference between the claims of Caesar and the claims of Christ. But most importantly, though, they represent that Christ is not merely an alternative to Caesar, but something new and completely different than Caesar. And that is what the Jewish people had failed to recognize at the triumphal entry. That's what the crowd failed to see. They saw Jesus as a Jewish alternative to Romans, uh, who would bring peace and reconciliation by replacing the good guys, meaning them, in charge. They wanted to fight fire with fire. And this guy, with his miracles and his obvious authority from God, was their guy to get it done. What they did not understand was that Jesus was not simply going to rearrange the pieces of the game. Jesus' plan was to break the pieces, overturn the game at board, and rewrite the game entirely. And the ultimate symbol of how he does that is the symbol of the cross. Now, we are familiar with the symbolism of the cross. We see it literally everywhere. However, the cross was a symbol for the Romans first, and a very powerful one. You see, because crucifixion was a very specific form of punishment, of torture, of execution. Uh, It was was reserved for those who challenged the Roman order. You couldn't be crucified with just any crime. You killed someone, that doesn't mean you get crucified. You steal something, that doesn't mean you get crucified. Crucifixion was reserved for for insurrectionists and rebel leaders. And so gruesome and heinous was crucifixion that, it, that we actually don't have a lot of details about the practice itself. We have lots of reports of crucifixions happening, but honestly, in the entire ancient world, although crucifixion happened quite a bit, uh, we only have four accounts of what actually happened during a crucifixion, and that is our four Gospels. Uh, Crucifixion was shameful. It was taboo. The Romans were reluctant to talk about it. It was considered the worst form of punishment. And the reason why was not just because of the pain, 
but because of the incredible amount of public humiliation that was involved. Remember, we're dealing with an honor-shame culture here. Shame was the worst thing ever. And so it wasn't just how brutal it was to the body, but also what it meant to the person and their status uh, as, as shameful. Crucifixion was used because it demonstrated how utterly wrong the person was in their claim. The victim was shamed and humiliated, but it was done so publicly in order to demonstrate the utter power of the executioner and the utter helplessness of the victim. It was the symbol that the rebellion had failed, and that failure was exposed for everyone to see. Crosses were essentially billboards advertising the supremacy of the empire. One of the key features of the crucifixion was the titulus uh, that let everyone know what you were crucified for. In Jesus' case, it was the claim that he was the king of the Jews. That's why there was a sign written at the top. Because it wasn't just about killing someone. It was letting everyone know why you were killing someone. Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. He's on a cross. You see him dying. We can plainly tell he is not the king of the Jews. By crucifying Jesus, the Romans were announcing that they decided who was king. No one else. The crown of thorn and the robes are all part of the humiliation because they demonstrate the falsity of this claim. But if we turn now to the second part of our passage from Colossians in chapter 2, we begin with this statement that in Christ the whole fullness of the deity dwells. So here again, we have Paul continuing down the same path as the hymn to Christ in chapter 1. We read that, uh, we, but we also read that we participate in this cosmic drama by which Christ is establishing a new order. And here Paul uses circumcision and baptism as pictures of how we participate in this rule of Christ. This new rule is a result of the victory that Christ won. Now, the fact that Christ won a victory, that it actually uses the word victory here is what I want to focus on. Because look at verse 15. Christ disarmed the rulers in authority and put them to open shame by what? Triumphing over them. Notice that word triumph. Here is another symbol that's being used. In the Roman world, a triumph was a public ceremony in which a military victory was celebrated. The general who won the victory was dressed in spectacular clothing, uh, usually like trimmed uh, with gold thread. Uh, He was made to look like Jupiter, their chief god. And in front of him were displayed his armies, all the captives he had taken in the battles, and the spoils that he had uh, taken from his conquered foes. A triumph was part parade. It was part religious ceremony. And it was also feasting. There were sporting events held. Uh, it, was, it was all of these things all in one. And here, what Paul is saying is that Christ has celebrated a triumph over the Romans by disarming them and putting them to shame. That word for disarming here is, uh, is meant uh, to give us a picture of what a conquering army would do uh, after they had won the battle. They would remove the armor and weapons of their defeated foe. Uh, they would take them as spoils. They were, they were part of what would be displayed uh, during the triumph. And here's the crazy thing, though, about this. Paul 
is claiming that Christ did this on a cross. And that was the exact opposite of what a cross was meant to represent. It was the exact opposite of what this symbol meant to the Romans. The cross was a sign that you were the one who had been disarmed, that you had no powerful in, uh, uh, power and authority, that you failed, that you were defeated, that you were the one shamed. In no way could you say it resembled a triumph because you didn't win a victory. And in fact, you were the one who was stripped and humiliated. And yet, that's exactly what Paul is claiming here. That would have been the boldest, the most unusual, the most audacious and fantastic claim that could ever be made. And yet that is exactly what Paul and the earlier followers of Christ did. I want to illustrate this point a little bit here because, you know, once again, this is such a sign of familiarity. It's something we see everywhere. But I want to try to get across how crazy this would sound like. So let's picture uh, an early Christian that's like maybe waiting at the dock for a ship, you know, maybe in Ephesus. You know, I'm kind of thinking of the, the uh, ancient equivalent of an airport, right? His ship has been delayed by a storm or something. And so he's sitting at the dock, you know, maybe, at the, maybe he uh, hangs out at the dock bar and gets some, uh, you know, wine. And he's talking to another guy because he's bored. You know, he wants to pass the time. They're just uh, chatting. Uh, they don't have smartphones back then, so they actually talk to each other. Now, what do they do? You know, they probably do what we would do. They talk about their families, their kids, maybe, maybe where they're going, what kind of business they have. Uh, and then the Christian guy, maybe he starts talking about his religion. Um, people back then were probably a little less guarded about the re- their religion than we tend to be because most people were polytheists. And they envisioned a world in which lots of deities operated. Uh, the, the exclusive claims of Christianity was, was not common. Uh, the Christian guy, maybe he talks about how the God he worships was this guy named Jesus and how this guy named Jesus died, but is now in heaven ruling the world from the divine realm. And I doubt after the guy said this, the other, the Christian guy says this, I doubt the other guy even blinks. He probably says something like, oh, cool. That's neat. Um, you mean kind of like how Julius Caesar does? The guy's like, no, no. Oh, you mean like Caesar Augustus? Because, you know, he died, but, you know, his spirit's up there in heaven ruling everything, you know, through our emperor. Uh, No. Oh, maybe you're like one of those like foreign religions, you know, like Osiris. Uh, You know, Osiris died and he's ruling in heaven now. No. So the Christian guy tries to explain, well, it's not quite like that with Jesus. Because, you know, Jesus, after he dies, he actually comes back in the flesh, in the material flesh. And then he goes to heaven. Now... I don't think that distinction would have meant too much to the guy unless he was some kind of big Neoplatonist or something like that. I doubt he cared about this uh, distinction. All he hears is this this is just another dude uh, who uh, claims that a guy said some wise things, died, and now was in heaven. Not that uncommon in the Roman world, to be honest with you. Now, let us say, though, that the Christian guy says, okay, but see, here's what's different. The deity that I worship had been crucified by Rome, and that was how he died. The other guy would have probably spit his wine all over the place, and who knows how he would have reacted. He may have sat in stunned silence. He may have laughed. He may have cursed. He may have just gotten up and left. In any event, he would have been horrified by this. This claim would have been totally ridiculous. It would have made no sense. 
can't have a deity who had been crucified. That was what was done to losers. That was what was done to prove that you were a loser and not done to deities who rule in heaven. Yet Paul is claiming that, is, that it is precisely by the cross that Jesus had triumphed over all the other rulers and the authority of the, uh, of the world. By claiming the cross as the, as the means of victory, Christianity is declaring, it's claiming something absolutely incredible. The crucifixion was just not just, it was not simply a means for Christ to die so that he could enter in some kind of cosmic uh, legal arrangement with God. You see, the cross was a victory worthy of a triumph over all the dark forces that had enslaved and bound humanity throughout history. Paul and the gospel writers understood it was not just the Roman Empire that was evil. Uh, but it was the forces of sin and death that lie behind the empire. All the dark forces that lie behind all empires are defeated on the cross. These are the dark forces that result in the human perversion of power that ignores the abundance in life given by God and instead lives in a paranoia that leads to greed and accumulation and therefore the need for conquest, violence, exploitation, and oppression. And it is these forces that are defeated on the cross. And those dark forces are defeated and overpowered because this victory comes through weakness, suffering, and humiliation that is symbolized by the cross. The cross is a victory, but it doesn't come through power and violence. In a world where might makes right, that is what Jesus is overturning. And that's the game that he's rewriting rather than simply rearranging the pieces. Colossians says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. And it is this how that is key. Jesus did it precisely by suffering the fate of their strongest weapon, the cross, and robbing it of its power. All the symbolism that the Romans had, uh, had, had developed into the cross, Jesus took away from it. And Jesus exposed their power as insufficient, as ineffective. Jesus demonstrated in his resurrection for all the world to see that their ultimate weapon had no hold over him. Jesus took the symbol that the Romans meant for failure and loss, and he made it into one that meant victory and triumph. And here is why this rewrites the entire game. Because Christ suffered crucifixion as the victim, and he won victory. And that's good news for the victims. He died in solidarity with the victims of power and violence. He gave them hope because no longer could the weapons be used against them prevail. However, by winning the victory on a cross, Christ also brings good news for the oppressors. Jesus had exposed the oppressors and showed them their error, not by defeating them with power, but by offering them love and forgiveness, by saying on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they have done. Jesus revealed that their kingdoms are lies and that the world that they so desperately cling to is false. Jesus shows, that a better, shows them a better way of bringing peace and reconciliation, a better way of being human. The oppressors have been freed 
from obedience to their systems of oppression, and that means that the oppressors have a chance to be reconciled. A victory by violence could never achieve this result. A victory on the cross, though, meant redemption from the oppressors. That's why the game has changed. Only by breaking that silence or that that cycle uh, could there be a new game. It's the only way the oppressors could be redeemed. And that is why the cross then becomes something new. And why the cross is not simply just another way to rearrange the pieces. The cross means hope. Not just for the oppressed, for whom Christ died in solidarity with, but also the oppressor for whom Christ died for. And here's the thing. All of us, we are both. We are both at times. The people we encounter are both. Uh, the, the great uh, Russian uh, writer Solzhenitsyn said, the line of good and evil runs right through the middle of our heart. And what Colossians tells us is that we have been filled in Christ because we have given our allegiance and authority to him as the true ruler of the world. And what that means is that in some way, we participate in this, in this uh, picture of Christ's death and resurrection. And therefore, Christ's story is also our story. We have undergone the circumcision of Christ. We have been buried with him in baptism. And we have been raised with him through faith, just as God raised him from the dead. Therefore, our work in this world is to be like Christ. And so that means that we stand in solidarity with the oppressed, but we also work to redeem the oppressor. We show that there is hope. Uh, By doing so, we show that there is hope for a better way than the old way of power and violence, a way to break the cycle, a way that embraces the other and leads to true peace and reconciliation, not just deserts that we label peace. This will also look utterly foolish to the world it will be hard for us it is completely counterintuitive one only has to think about ukraine right now to come up with an example of the hopelessness we see in this world but here's the thing it was also utterly foolish in the world of the roman empire and yet paul claims exactly that paul writes this letter to the Colossians with this sweeping, beautiful language of the rule of Christ and the victory and triumph won by Christ, Paul is imprisoned when he writes this letter. But if we follow the logic of the cross, if we take this symbol that has been changed and we adopt what I am saying here and we understand what is paradoxical and counterintuitive about it, then we must embrace that victory is a victory to be won through weakness and suffering. We must understand that the cross is is not merely a means to a death that would lead to a resurrection, but the cross is a symbol, and it's indispensable to the victory that Christ won over the dark forces of the world. Therefore, we should not expect victory to look like what we think it should. We started our service with a call to worship from the book of Revelation. And when the elders announced to John the lion of the tribe of Judah, John turns and what does he see? He sees a slaughtered lamb. John understands 
the paradox of a victory, of a conqueror who comes not by force and violence, but by suffering and being slain. The conqueror is the one who has been slain in Christ's kingdom. And it's this ultimate paradox of Christianity. If we seek to follow Christ, it is this paradox that we have to embrace. And embracing this paradox of the victory of the cross means that success for us must be viewed in a different way. If we are following Christ, then our victories must also look paradoxical. Our triumph should not look like a top-down victory that comes through power. What our victories should look like is regular people, little people, weak people, clumsy people with few skills, people like us doing incredible things. Not acts of power that would win a triumph in an empire, but just small acts of kindness. Uh, It would look like a kid accepting someone in school who was bullied and excluded. It would look like someone using whatever privilege they've been given or uh, to, to lift someone up, to use money or authority uh, to give somebody an opportunity. It will look like doing good to someone who doesn't deserve it. It will look like see- sharing resources and seeking to help rather than merely to protect and acquire. In other words, it will look like refusing to play the game we have been thrust into and instead, instead to seek out and announce a better way to live and act in this world. That is what the paradoxical victory of the cross should symbolize to us. Let us hold fast to the centrality of the cross in all its weakness and humiliation. And in this way, we can practice resurrection.